When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thank you for downloading this Intelligence Squared podcast. For more information on our debates, talks and discussions, visit intelligencesquared.com and sign up to the newsletter. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Um, I felt I ought to start with a mild apology. Um, many of you will have signed up to this evening expecting uh, to take part in a, a cauldron of heated controversy um, while Parliament tries to sort itself out. Um, uh, and we have indeed um, a, a panel here of people who are experts in hung parliaments, um, coalition theory, uh, um, legitimacy of minority governments, uh, um, uh, the decline of party politics and so on. Um, well, um, Intelligence Squared goofed. Uh, <laughs> And um, so we've got a series of experts in the inevitability of the Tory victory, um, the death of Labour, how that was so predictable, um, uh, uh, the rigor mortis of the Liberal Democrats, and so on and so forth. Um, what uh, we, we did briefly think of, 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 of chucking it in and having Kevin Peterson and the English team, um, but, but uh, no, we're going to stick to our guns, um, and uh, we're going to try and address two questions this evening. The first is, relatively briefly, what went wrong? Uh, um, and secondly, since that's just retrospective, um, uh, and maybe many people think it didn't go wrong at all, it went right. Uh, but secondly, um, we'll look forward to the Parliament, what are going to be the issues of the Parliament, um, what are going to be the controversies, and what is the consequence of the election result for the major parties. Uh, we have um, Vernon Bogdanor. Where's Vernon? Here's Vernon on, on my right. Uh, thank goodness. Um, uh, he is, of course, an expert in hung parliaments, coalition theory, and, and so on. Um, but he's going to try his best. Uh, professor of Politics at King's College London, um, uh, distinguished scholar of, of, of British politics and ubiquitous um, at uh, discussions like this. Uh, Margaret Hodge, uh, known to many of you, uh, Labour MP for Barking, um, uh, chair of the Public Accounts Committee, um, for whom the word feisty was invented until it was banned as, a, as applying to women. Um, uh, uh, on my left, Alice Thompson um, from The Times, a distinguished columnist, formerly with The Telegraph, uh, again an expert in uh, politics of left and right, um, possibly in hung parliaments, possibly not. And on her left, um, uh, geographically speaking, um, Jesse Norman, uh, Tory MP for Hereford, um, uh, biographer of Burke, immensely distinguished um, uh, theorist of uh, modern conservatism, um, and nothing has demonstrated um, Jesse's independence of spirit more than he's not a member of the current government. Um, That's your panel, as they say. Uh, So I'm I'm going to ask uh, Vernon to kick off. Vernon, um, why... Uh, a week ago, um, did we think we were going to be somewhere else than we are now? Well, it's uh, generous of you to ask me to kick off, Simon, and um, it's the first time, I think, at a meeting like this, you've had the dust cart before the Lord Mayor's show, because I think people who are involved in politics and have spent the last few weeks knocking on doors know more about what went wrong than an academic. But um, there is a a concept... um, which a German pollster invented called the spiral of silence, whereby people do not mention, whether at dinner parties or when asked by pollsters, 
views that are unfashionable. And that first came noticeable in the United States in 1980 when the polls showed that it would be a very close race between Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan. And of course it wasn't. Uh, Ronald Reagan won very easily. And then of course we have another example in Britain in 1992 when it was unfashionable to say that you were going to vote conservative. So uh, I think the spiral of silence is the main reason why things went wrong. But I, I think the real significance of any election is to um, what it tells you about opinion in a particular country. And um, I thought before coming here, uh, I would look at the Liberal Democrat Manifesto, uh, whose uh, headline was Stability, Unity, Decency. And the Liberal Democrats took the view that they were a moderating force between two extremes. And, of course, that was the view that was rejected. And rejected not only because people swung to the two major parties, but because a number of voters in England and Scotland said the two parties, far from being extremists, were actually the same. And they represented a political class which had become increasingly out of touch and so they felt disfranchised. In England, many voters said the two parties agree about staying in the European Union. They agree broadly on welcoming immigration. They agree broadly on gay marriage. They agree broadly on HS2. But we don't actually share that view. In Scotland, many voters said the two parties agree on austerity. They agree on Trident. But we don't actually share that view. And this perception was felt most strongly by those left behind by social change in the areas of declining heavy industry in the west central belt of Scotland, in the uh, northeast of England, and also in the decaying seaside towns on the east coast. And it's in the first two areas that you'd have expected voters to be loyal to the Labour Party, that the Labour Party represented such people. It was no longer felt to be representing them. And it's not only in Scotland that Labour was in trouble, but even in some of its strongholds in the North East. And let me just conclude on this, because I can see Simon looking at me threateningly. If you take the safe Durham constituency of Bishop Auckland, Labour's majority there in 1997 was over 17,000. In this election, it was 3,500. And UKIP stands ready to challenge Labour in many of its traditional strongholds the way the SNP has destroyed the Labour Party in Scotland. This is a new phenomenon in Britain, the phenomenon of disfranchisement, and 50% of the voters in Scotland voted for a party which stands for the disfranchised, and 12.5% in the United Kingdom as a whole voted for another party which stands for the disfranchised, whose views, let me say, I completely reject, but they are held by large numbers of people. Thank you very much. Alice, what went wrong? I think it's down to the three S's, actually. And the S's are shy Tories, but also sly Tories and the SNP. So to start with shy Tories, I think there are quite a lot of you, and some of you might be in here, who didn't actually end up saying you were going to vote Tory and didn't even think you would until you got to the ballot box. And I think that happened with quite a lot of people. And I think partly it was the polls, because the polls looked as if they were so equal and everyone at the Times, we all believed those polls, they looked so equal that people did look at them and think, oh my God, if we don't vote Tory and we don't do it, then, then they're not even going to get a minority government. If the polls had shown that they were seven, eight, nine points ahead, I think you would have found people being less likely to vote Tory. They wouldn't have wanted a massive majority and they'd have thought, oh well, there are other people who can do it for me, I'm not going to do it myself. And we, in the press, we've talked a lot about shy stories, try Tories in the last two or three days. But I think almost more interesting were the sly Tories. And this is what we haven't really heard about. But I come from the West Country. And in the West Country, the Tories absolutely trounced the Liberal Democrats. And none of us really knew that was going to happen. And it's only now that we've realised that the Tories spent a lot of time really going for the Liberal Democrats. And they'd been their coalition partners, so I think they were slightly embarrassed about admitting it. 
But if you talk to them now, they will say that their main operation really was down there and was with the Lib Dems and in London as well, in their seats there, and they just wanted to get the Lib Dems and they knew they had a chance with them. And Linton Crosby's main aim was to get them out. And in a way, that was the right thing to do for the Tories, but it was a fantastically ruthless thing to do. Um, so you can either agree with their tactics or not, but they did work. And I think the last one is the SNP, really, where I think so many people did worry at the very end that if they voted for either the Lib Dems or for Labour, they would get the SNP. And I think people really panicked about that in the end, and they didn't want to have um, anyone in Scotland really dictating to too great an extent what was going to happen in England. Thank you. Margaret Hodge? Um, The question we were actually put to us is why didn't anybody foresee the outcome, which is a slightly different question. And I think the answer is the pollsters got it wrong. The pollsters got it really badly wrong. And I think they got it wrong because they asked the wrong question. And as somebody who has spent a huge amount of time on the doorstep, uh, particularly since about the last 10 years since I had the challenge of the British National Party and Nick Griffin in my own constituency, um, it matters a lot how you talk to people. And I think if you ask them the crude, what are you going to vote tomorrow, you don't get an honest answer out of that. So the pollsters are the ones that got it wrong, in my view. When I was on the doorstep, um, I knew that Labour was in trouble, but I knew something else. I actually think politics is in trouble. I think it's a much, much wider issue. People are just fed up with all the political parties. I think the Tories won. The Tories aren't loved. I don't know what Jesse will say about that. The Tories aren't loved, uh, and it was a sort of negative vote for them. Fear of change fear of the difference, possibly fear of the SNP, that pushed one in four voters to make up their minds in the last 24 hours how they were going to vote. But I think probably in this audience, if one took a straw poll, most of you are fed up with all of us. And I think the way we do our politics, the focus on the Westminster bubble, the silly games we play in Parliament, epitomised at its worst in Prime Minister's questions, shows that we are out of touch. And for Labour, that out-of-touchness told most strongly in Scotland, where part of it was that uh, they just wanted to give us... It was a protest vote against our inability to connect with people and to offer people properly proper hope. And I think that connection between the political class and uh, voters is the real challenge for those of us that care deeply about politics. Beyond that, I think the, uh, uh, um, uh, from, from the Labour Party's point of view, I don't think we offered hope. I went up to Scotland a few times, and I sort of kept feeling when I went around council estates talking to people that um, the Labour Party was very removed from the, real, from the lives of, all, of people. They focused inwards. They were pretty Tammany Hall there in that you know, they assumed they could weigh the votes in year after year after year. They didn't focus out. And if you wanted a bit of hope on a sort of pretty run-down council estate in the middle of Glasgow... I think you would vote SNP because it was a protest against the establishment and it was a party that gave you a message of hope. So I think we didn't have a message of hope and a message of aspiration. I don't think we talked sufficiently and coherently about how we would create prosperity and wealth. And I think we we focused too much on the really critical issue, which we will come back to, of inequality but not enough on actually seeing how we could give everybody that feeling that we would deliver better for them. But I think the big lesson, the big lesson, and I think the Tories got away with it this time, won't necessarily get away with it next time, is that they're fed up with all of us, and we've got to change how we do politics to re-engage and recapture that uh, confidence and trust from uh, uh, voters in the political class. Thank you very much. Jesse? Well, thank you, Simon, for uh, uh, mentioning my failure to make it into the government uh, in the reshuffle, also known as the season of Passover. 
<laughs> in my family. Um, of course, I'm bound to say, I don't think anything went wrong in selection. I thought the British people demonstrated their customary genius um, mm. in selecting the uh, government that they did, and I'm very grateful that they did. Uh, but uh, I also do think that uh, an awful lot of things that have been said are, are right. Um, the Liberal Democrats lost the ability to be none of the above in the election, and that combined with tuition fees uh, and their attempt to hold a second ground that no one really believed led to total destruction um, in, their, uh, uh, in seats that they held and in seats where there was a majority um, in 2010. Um, if you look down the other parties very quickly, um, the lazy Labour voters, there were clearly voters who failed to come out for Labour, who were not inspired by Labour and who did not buy Ed Miliband as a political leader. Um, and uh, that um, you know, was, was, was complemented by um, a, a very fired up UKIP, which in many parts of the country is becoming not a threat so much to the Conservatives as a recycling device for uh, Labour votes who want to come away from Labour. We, we've talked about Scotland, but the same is also true in large chunks of northern England. You know, where are these people going to go? The answer is they're not very impressed. Uh, uh, they're very angry with the situation they're in. They don't feel there's much hope in front of them. They're not trusting Labour, so they go to UKIP. So, but there is a final question, which is um, that I think Margaret's right about the absence of trust. People are, the British people are an enormously intelligent group when they come to make these collective decisions, but they're not impressed with politics. I personally don't think that any of the current ways in which we as political parties uh, communicate with each other or communicate with the electorate are remotely effective. Thank you very much. Um, uh, um, Vernon, coming back to you, uh, couldn't you see this election as a rather sophisticated action by the, by, by the electorate? This election, we, we're going to make up our own mind. We're not taking the dustbin votes. We're not voting with the, the tribe or the party. We're going to think about this. We don't care what the pollsters say. We're going to say this. Yes, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And the, um, I think the most striking feature of the, of the election was the high vote for... UKIP and the sweep of the SNP, and they are both vo the voters who support those parties are very alienated from the political system. There's a strong feeling of disfranchisement, and perhaps that also extends to people who actually did vote Conservative or Labour, um, perhaps were tempted to move away but didn't. But I think this is what the system shows, and of course it's masked by the electoral system, because in England all but eight seats are, are won by the two main parties, though... Um, the other parties um, got a very large minority of the vote. No. Um, I want to say one thing about the vote. The registration is done. We've got something like 7.5 million people who are not registered to vote, and the changes in the registration system whereby you've all got to individually register now has created a, 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 a smaller electorate. I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing is to say, it is, I mean, I, although the, uh, the, not, the turnout is up, it's still pretty low. It's, it was about 66% this time. So a lot, a lot of people are choosing not to vote. And you, it tends to be those who are more likely by their back socioeconomic grouping to vote Labour who, be, who are the ones who don't vote. So there's a, there's a built-in bias. And when you pollsters ask them, they don't actually, I think, ever reflect that bias. The other thing I just want to say, because I feel this really strongly... The votes for UKIP, and I, I say this out of my experience with the British National Party, uh, the votes for UKIP, the votes for the BNP, and to some extent, it's slightly different, the votes for the SNP, are largely a protest against, I'm afraid, Jesse and, and, and myself, about, against our two parties. Um, that protest comes partly from the frustration that, for example, the issue of immigration, only recently have we dared to start talking about that openly. We're still deeply dishonest about the way we talk about it. Everybody puts up, we're going to cut the numbers. Nobody ever delivers on that because... You know, migration is a feature of globalization. People will inevitably go across boundaries. And if you promise you're going to cut numbers, you don't cut numbers, you lose trust and people get fed up and they go to the, uh, the party that is, uh, is talking about these issues. So I think it is a protest. I don't think it's a positive vote for an alternative. It's a protest against us, and it's also a failure to listen to what is actually really important to people, to address it honestly and openly, and actually not to overpromise when you can't deliver. 
Uh, let's come to the audience in one second. I just want to ask Margaret one last question. Uh, if you look at the press at the moment, it's filled with people saying the Labour Party's finished, it's got to rethink itself, uh, everything to do with the left has, has got it wrong. Is it possible that that's rubbish? The one thing that was wrong was the leader. Um, I, I think it was a disastrous election for us, but I don't think it's the end of the Labour Party. In fact, we are the party of opposition. Uh, and the real challenge is to come back very quickly, and I think that does require... Uh, it, 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 we, we will have a new leader. Uh, we need somebody who is willing to uh, um, understand, I think, the enormity of the task they face. And then I think we've just got to rethink through, again, how we develop. We've got lasting values. I always say that. Why am I a Labour Party member? When people worry about this, I find it very a question easy to answer. It's because I basically believe in using the power of the state to try and equalise opportunity. That's what puts me in. So I, I just want to use that to try and make um, everybody, a, those a, people able to you know, fulfil their potential. Now, what you've got is that that's your lasting value. For me, it is equalising opportunity. You've then got to place that in the mod, modern context of, um, uh, of the challenges facing us today. And we didn't do that. We didn't talk about aspiration enough. We didn't talk about... Uh, we were very anti-business, completely ridiculous, because you, you, you need the creation of wealth. We have to talk about the creation of wealth as well as the uh, uh, distribution of wealth. So it wasn't the leader. And, I mean, you're saying it wasn't... Well, the leader was part of it, uh, but it was, I think... Uh, we were just moving in the wrong direction. And I, uh, I was somebody who, who sort of came in when Tony Blair uh, became leader of the Labour Party is when I came into the House of Commons. And I think he brilliantly managed to push us into that centre ground where people felt that we were talking to their aspirations, their hopes and their fears, and yet did an enormous amount to, uh, um, through investment in education and elsewhere to, tr to equalise those life chances, which is the kernel of, I think, Labour's values. OK. Um, uh, what's, what's, what's going to be the character of the next parliament, then? Well, um, after the uh, election, uh, Matthew Paris wrote a piece in The Times in which he said, among the more touching details in a procession of bigger pictures was the sight of hired constitutionalists slipping out of the television studios in the small hours of the morning, <laughs> humbly aware that their services would no longer be required. Was that but you? In, in fact, <laughs> but in fact, I think this parliament will be dominated by constitutional issues. The issue of Europe, very obviously, the issue of Scotland, and the issue of human rights. And these all pose uh, a stark difference between two points of view, which are not necessarily... Say, not necessarily the same division between the major parties, between those who believe in an open, liberal and multinational society and those who believe in a closed national society. And again, uh, the election doesn't offer much hope to liberal-minded people. I'm using the term liberal here with a small l because the reaction to the economic crisis of 2008 was not, as Ed Miliband hoped, a social democratic moment, but a nationalist moment in Scotland and also in England with UKIP, and that corresponds with what's happening on the continent with some very nasty parties gaining support, the Front National in France, the Sweden Democrat, Jobbik in Hungary, and so on. It's uh, happened also to some extent in the 1980s uh, with an economic crisis and, of course, in an extreme form in the 1930s when the Depression pushed people not to socialism but to fascism. And I hate... Uh, I want to say quickly, I, these parties are not like that in Britain. They're perfectly constitutional, moderate and decent parties, and I happen to disagree with them, but they are, don't want there to be any misunderstanding about that. So I think this um, parliament will be dominated by the constitutional question and by one other question, which is whether the National Health Service can any longer survive in its present form. It needs £8 billion in addition to what the present government's already given to it. Uh, that is only if the Health Service finds £22 billion in efficiency savings. Now, efficiency savings is one of those lovely words like federalism, which seems a magic solution. What it actually means is longer waiting times, fewer doctors, fewer nurses... And our health service is a wonderful and brilliant service created for the conditions of the mid-20th century. 
not a very brilliant service for conditions at the beginning of the 21st century with an ageing population, much higher expectations and huge advances in medicine so that uh, medical problems which could not be treated 50 or 60 years ago now can be treated but can only be treated very expensively. And perhaps this is something the left might look at. How are we going to uh, finance our health service before it meets a crunch point? when people are not prepared to pay very much more in income tax or national insurance, but nevertheless want a Swedish style of health service. Thank you very much. Um, Jesse, how is your party going to cope with Europe? It's the great roadblock on the route of this parliament. Uh, uh, I think with effortless uh, grace. Uh, <laughs> and brilliance, uh, Simon. No, I mean, I actually... Um, let's just, let me just question the premise of uh, Vernon's argument, if I may. Um, so Vernon said there's going to be an argument between closed national, as it were, view of um, Britain versus an open liberal view. And, and of course, actually, I, I think that's only half true. Um, if we think of why, I mean, I'm going to venture the fast slightly, why the country managed to get out of the colossal economic hole we found ourselves in in 2008, it's because we were able to pull the national ripcord. We were able to actually pull the capacity of the nation state to tax people with their assent in order to underwrite the money that went to bail out the banking system. So the nation state, very far from being over and ready to be sublimated in some wider whole, actually um, retains its extraordinary capacity to command our assent and support, and thank goodness it does, or we'd have had a terrible, terrible problem a few years ago. Um, no, I think the, the, there is a huge uh, constitutional issue um, in this country, and very quickly let me just say I hope we will not go down a narrow English nationalism. I am a unionist fully as fervently as Alice's, and if I have one regret about the election, uh, about the referendum, it is that I did not hear enough voices questioning the very basic premises of the nationalist argument. The idea that the Act of Union 1707 was somehow a primordial act of theft by which Scotland was, as it were, um, undermined and destroyed and betrayed by the English is complete nonsense. The fact of the matter is the Scottish economy was on its knees in 1706. They'd had two famines in the previous ten years. They just squandered a quarter of the country's national wealth um, on a a fanciful trip to set up a new uh, colony in Darien. And, um, you know, there was a period of uh, readjustment over the next uh, generation after which Scotland became the Asian tiger of, um, you know, the world for the next 100-odd, 120 years. Can we get to to the 21st century? We will motor. (laughs) We will motor smoothly into the 21st century now, uh, Simon. Thank you for that. And so if we think about what's happening with Europe, um, Europe is in a horrible mess because a political project has been allowed to set the economics without having caught up with it itself. And the Eurozone is a horrible mess itself. And the countries, the major countries of Europe, the French, the Germans, the Italians, the Spanish, they understand this. They understand the Eurozone is a mess. And they want treaty change because they realize that without treaty change, you cannot have the fiscal mechanisms and you cannot have the banking backstops that are required to allow them to get through this economic and potentially in due course further financial crisis. So they are up for treaty change. Now the question is, therefore, how do we frame a discussion with those partners that allow us to um, present a suitable bill of fare to this country in order to have um, the referendum that the Prime Minister has promised? And actually I think the, the, the demands we're making are at the moment at least relatively, in some respects, relatively undemanding. And therefore I think we will have a sensible negotiation. I hope it's accelerated, but we'll have to see how it works. It's due to happen by 2017, and then we'll have a referendum. And hopefully that will then put this issue to bed for a generation. We can get on with the other issues that um, haven't been mentioned so far, notably getting us out of the next, the second half of the financial hole in which we still find ourselves. Margaret, I mean, do you think the Labour Party is likely to agree with that? Do you think, do you think it would go along with Cameron in his renegotiation having a referendum? Um, well, I just think the focus will be on Europe Remember, we only have a very small conservative majority, and I'm afraid the part, whatever Jesse does say, he knows that the party is riven on Europe, and um, that there's you know, the focus from the parliamentary party, parliamentary conservative party, will be on that. And I just think there are more important things to get on with. One of which is the NHS. So uh, that's my first observation. There. The second observation is I don't share Jesse's optimism about. The, uh, the European countries coming on board on any renegotiation. Had we been at the heart of Europe, uh, we might have been able to have a sensible negotiation over, for example, benefit rights. Uh, but the truth is, you, the, only, the only actual evidence we have 
of the strength of the UK under the Conservatives in Europe is the vote of Juncker, getting Juncker in as, as uh, uh, the new, uh, um, can't remember the title, his title, the new boss in Europe, bureaucratic boss in Europe, and we stood on our own. We were the only guys opposing him. So I can't see this great embracing in Europe of any attempt to do any renegotiations. So um, I think we will be dominated. I agree with Vernon. We will be dominated by these constitutional issues. And I think it's the last thing you want. And I think, um, let me just say something about nationalism. Because I, there I do agree with Jesse. I hope we don't go down uh, very narrow English nationalism. Um, we are, it, we, again, we are increasingly global, and it is completely absurd in that uh, context to think that we can start creating smaller and smaller entities within uh, our great United Kingdom. And there's a difference between devolving power, where I know Simon's been a huge uh, force for um, arguing the case, devolving power, and having constitutional change. So I'm all for devolving power. I'm very excited by the proposals for in, 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 in Manchester around uh, the northern uh, cities there. I want much greater de devolution here in, in London. I think we should be running the, regional, the health service here regionally. We'd make a better fist of it than the NHS England does. I think we should have much greater devolution of benefits here. So you can have de huge devolution, but that doesn't mean you then go for a constitutional change. And just think, just think about two things. For years and years, I don't know if Alice agrees with this, but for years and years and years, the British government has used Scotland as a testing ground for its policies. Who remembers the poll tax? We tried that out in Scotland. There wasn't a Scottish voter, a Scottish MP, a Scottish anybody who wanted the poll tax, and it was tested on them. And they didn't have the right to vote. Now they've become a stronger regional force. We oppose it, and I don't get it. You know, that we're going we're gonna to give Trident will stay in Scotland. They're not having a say on that. Um, where's the justice in that? Or even take an issue like HS2. Uh, which I don't support. I, I, it's not where I would put my money. But should MPs in the southwest now be having a say on whether or not we have a link between London and the north? This is a very complex set of issues. It's, you know, we take decisions the whole time which impact more on one, one area than another. Can I bring you back to my question? We, Sorry. I'm getting on. In a situation in which um, Cameron's renegotiated something He's been given a, 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 a send-off by, by um, the Germans or whoever. He comes back and says, I've got a great deal here. Half his party aren't going to vote for them. The other half are. Which side would you take? Oh, I am very pro-European, and I will so always you, I will the argue... The Labour Party would support the Conservative Party? The Labour Party has its, is not as riven mm. as the Conservative Party. There are some within the Labour Party who are anti-European, so I think this will cross party political lines. But personally, I will um, always strongly argue the case for staying in Europe. Alice, look forward to the Parliament. Um, I'm going to disagree with the others on the NHS section, I'm afraid. Having spent two months looking in, at the NHS for the Times, which Rachel Sylvester and I did for a series, and we must have talked to 150, 200 health professionals. We went all around the country. And I have to say... I think we did too much in the last parliament with the NHS. Actually, if they'd just left the NHS alone, it would have been a lot better off. And I know you're all going to disagree, but the NHS is not the most important issue in the next five years. It would be much better not to do anything with the NHS and let it bed down, let it get used to its changes. And I feel the same on education, that so much has happened in education, so much has been done in education, that we actually need to let people... Just get used to it. And, you know, I've got four children going through all the education system at the moment, and they've got all sorts of different new exams coming up. And we let, let need now to let the teachers and the professionals try and work out what all these changes have been and what they mean. So, for me, I think, actually, education and health is something I wouldn't worry too much about if I were the Tories. But I would be worrying about the Constitution, because it is just such a mess for them to try and unpick. And I think now the only thing almost you can do with Scotland is to say, yes you do need fiscal autonomy. But if you're going to have full fiscal autonomy, you cannot have the Barnet formula as well. So I would now let them run their own finances because I think that would really give them a wake-up call. Because at the moment, England is very much Let's the bank of mum and dad. You know, Let's it's a sort of much more, you know, come, we'll give you a bit of money and we'll help you out. Taxes. And then you can be quite rude to your parents. You it can sort of say, look, you know, we didn't need you. You know, we, you know, 
it's a sort of teenage relationship at the moment. It's not a grown-up relationship. So that's what I would do. I would say, actually, now I think we're going to go for full fiscal autonomy. And if it works, fantastic. And then we can do more with the federalism. If it doesn't work, we'll have to think again. It was interesting when Nicholas Sturgeon had that conversation, apparently, with Cameron the other night. Mm. Um, he said, well, why don't you just have to get all ta- full tax raising powers? It's all, you're on your own, all your money. She doesn't want it. She said, oh, oh hold on. Mm. <laughs> you, you asked that, that question in Wales. Mm. Oh, no, we don't want anything to do with taxes. <laughs> you, might, you might make us uh, you know, responsible. Um, well, that's right. Yes. Of course, the, the, the Scots, um, um, very much in the manner of St. Augustine, would like to be good, but not yet. Um, uh, uh, and in the interregnum, they'd be perfectly happy to receive an extremely generous financial settlement from the rest of the country. So, no, there is a problem. I mean, I do think, just if I may say so, there's a, there's a couple of things, just to pick up on a couple of things that Margaret said. I mean, if you believe, as we commonly believe, that it's really important to, um, you know, have a national health service that's allowed to make its way through... Um, uh, uh, the process of reform that have already been started, as Alice has said. Um, and if you believe that there's too much Yabu politics, then why on earth have we got a political debate where no intelligent conversation can be had about the NHS without someone from the left denouncing it as privatisation? And the facts of the matter are that the, the, the NHS, 5% at the moment, um, uh, is privately uh, contracted, apart from GPs, which have always been private, and it was just gone to 6% in the last five years. So it's a minuscule amount, and yet we've had an entire election deformed by a stupid argument about that. And that would be the beginning of an intelligent argument, a conversation would be to, to try to get away from that Yabu style of denunciation towards a more uh, a thoughtful approach. A final thing, whatever you think about Europe, and there has been a balance of competence review which is reported and which shows that our, broadly speaking, many aspects of our relationship with Europe are actually constructive and sensible. Whatever you think about that, there is a serious issue about legitimacy of the European Union and its institutions. And we can pretend that doesn't exist, but the fact of the matter is that in 1974, we had a referendum. People did not believe they were buying into anything like the political project, and they were not encouraged to believe by the political class at that time. And that issue of legitimacy needs to be addressed and put on a proper footing. And if that happens, then hopefully we can stop thinking about Europe and get on with living our lives. But how on earth are you going to do that? By the mechanism of grace and elegance that I've already described. Uh, Vernon, you raised NHS. Um, Do you you see... uh, I'm sure what what, um, Jesse says is true. You've got any questions. If if, if you want to get a round of applause, just say, our NHS is wonderful. Roars of applause. (laughs) <laughs> if, 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 you, if you dare to question it, you, you start talking about charging, anything like that, booze, catcalls, and so on. It's the new religion. But, but you raised it. I mean, do you think we're going to start charging for uh, appointments and surgeries or what? Well, I think that's obviously one option that may have to be looked at. I mean, I, I agree with Alice to the extent that the NHS needs another reorganisation like a hole yeah. in the head. And the last one, I think, was a terrible blunder which very few professionals in the health service support. But the reason why I said there would be concentration on the NHS was a simple one of money. If, as Alice implies, you do nothing at all and forget about the health service, it seems to me it will go bankrupt. It it, um, needs huge injections of money regularly and it's very difficult to combine with the conservative approach of reducing taxation as well. Um, I, I don't see how all that is going to happen. And I say further efficiency savings seem to be very, very difficult to achieve. I think education is quite diff- different because reforms have been put in place there by Michael Gove, which, if they're going to have a beneficial effect, and I believe they might, require a, lo- a long-term uh, um, approach uh, no, it's no good expecting in rapid improvements in literacy or numeracy over the, the life of one parliament. This is one of the problems, I think, with education reform. They should now be left in place, and let's see whether they are beneficial or not. Um, Margaret, one of, the, one of the questions raised the question of inequality, which you said you wanted to come back to. I mean, we had this, this meeting last night with Pickersy, um, who, who I thought was fascinating, but all over the shop. Um, but he, he, he's basically raising the, 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 the thesis... That, that an ever more unequal society is unsustainable. Yeah. You can quite say what happened when it stopped sustaining itself, yeah. the bloody revolution or what. But, but I mean, how do you see this acting itself out in politics? Because it's, it's undoubtedly a fact. Inequality is growing. Well, I, I would say that the Conservative government is not going to be able to ignore it, actually, because it's grown so hugely in this century. It, that it, uh, and it, it will create... I remember... I don't get it, it's going back a bit, but I remember pre-'97 
when we had a lot of homeless people on the streets. I don't even remember, remember that. I remember tripping over homeless people as you, as you, as you, walk, you know, walked, walked around the West End in the evening. That's coming back. The food banks that I have in my constituency now um, are, you know, the, the offer is awful because it's all horrible tin food that not, probably nobody in this audience would, would serve up. But, it's, you know, the, the demand is just growing. That sort of inequality, the inequality in our schools, it's just inequality of income. It is just not on. And, you know, we're one of the richest societies. We are one of the richest societies in the world. You may not feel that every day of the week. And we just have to, whilst we want to create wealth, we also have to distribute it in a more equal way if we're, um, if we're Going to, if we're going to have a sustainable, healthy, and coherent and sort of a good community. Can I just say something about education? I just so strongly disagree with that. The focus, and probably the Labour government had it too much, is always on structure. So what are we going to do now? We're going to establish free schools. We're going to establish academies. We did a bit of it when we were in government. All you really need in education is real investment in the early years to really equalise opportunities, and that's been decimated in the last five years. You need really strong leadership, so invest in developing that. You need to ensure that you actually put uh, support teaching, support the profession to improve itself, and you have to make sure kids read. And if we just focused on those four things, we would absolutely transform equality. Alice. In almost every election I can remember, n number one, two, or three is who was crime. It just isn't anymore. We've cut the number of police. We appear to have cut expenditure on crime busting to the bone. Crime goes down. What do you deduce from that? I think it is extraordinary that the other one is the fact that the far surface has also gone down, that we've, we very rarely write about this as journalists, but there's several areas which just disappear, and we can't work out whether it's because journalists stop talking about them or whether it's actually because it is an issue. And with crime, it has been. Theresa May, though, has been a fantastically good Home Secretary in the way that she really has closed down a lot of issues, and she did tackle the police, which was a big issue, I think, for the Tories. And I think she's done it very effectively, actually. So I think she's managed to go a long way to negating crime. And the reason you know it's different is that when you interview Home Secretaries now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, whenever you talk to them, and Simon probably did the same there, they were always talking about prisons, they were always talking about criminals, they were always talking about locking people up, what you were going to do. Whereas now when you talk to them, it is just about immigration. That's become the issue that we really want to discuss now and the issue that Theresa May spends most of her time thinking about now, I think. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's very difficult to tell why the crime figures have gone down. There are all sorts of reasons for it. But I think the, the, the issue that's now taken to the fore instead is probably immigration. Um, and I think that is an issue that they will also have to cover. Okay, let's come to the audience again now. Um, hands up, please. And uh, let's start with the lady in glasses at the back and the man in the blue shirt here first. Um, I'd like to ask a couple of quick questions about the Liberal Democrats. I noticed that they're not formally re represented today. Uh, I guess one-eighth of the parliamentary party being here might, might have been overkill. A um, couple of points. Do you think the electorate has maybe a little bit shocked by how much of a kicking they gave to the Liberal Democrats? Uh, maybe almost a little bit disappointed that uh, other people hadn't voted enough for keeping some of their MPs in Parliament. And a second question, are there areas of the country now where there is very little opposition to be it Labour in some areas and be it the Conservatives in others because the Liberal Democrats were the only opposition yeah, and now there's whole sweeps of the country where there's only one party who, who dominates which tends not to be healthy for democracy. Yeah, good, good point. Right, Lib Dems, who had the... Okay. Um, Margaret referred to the UKIP uh, vote as being a protest vote, but at 12.6, that's more votes than the SNP and the Liberal Democrats combined. So do you not think that they have uh, real concerns? Likewise, the media that have sort of ridiculed the UKIP for many years um, should start to take some of the issues and concerns of the party more seriously and engaging with them sensibly rather than just trying to ridicule them. Uh, one more on, on the side. Um, yes, you said... 
Um, I've um, been told that full financial responsibility goes much further than the powers of uh, states normally have in a federal system. I'd be interested in Professor Bognor's views on that. And secondly, I uh, would be interested to know whether the panel thinks there's any chance in this parliament of a joined-up, durable, sensible constitutional settlement for the regions and nations of the UK. For the what? Confederalism, so to speak. Yeah. A new federation of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, one more, one last one. Uh, quick one. The lady with the glasses, yes, now take them off. You've got to stand up and take the microphone. In light of the voting, do you think that electoral reform will rise its head in this parliament? Thank you very much. Right. Um, Jesse, start off. Take, uh, take one of them and we'll see if we answer them all by the end. Uh, yeah, well, I'll just be very quickly. Um, Speak quickly, yeah. On electoral form, uh, no. Um, it's a simple uh, question that I can answer. And, and we had electoral form attempted with the AV referendum last time round, and British people very emphatically rejected it, and I don't think there's much appetite for more of it. Um, that was a Liberal Democrat constitutional wheeze, and one of the reasons why um, the Lib Dems, just to come to the first question, had the... Um, uh, reaction that they did was because I think people subliminally felt that some of the things they were bashing on about were more about their hobby horses rather than core issues of the election. Um, but I would like to say something potentially unfashionable, which is, frankly, I take my hat off to the Lib Dems. I mean, we were in a terrible hole as a country in 2010. We desperately needed a strong government. It took courage for them to come into a coalition with the Conservative Party. Um, you know, they didn't have to vote against um, tuition fees. Um, they could have abstained, but they did vote against it because they thought it was the right policy. And their courage is what is allowing people to uh, go to university now in greater numbers than ever before and more progressively than ever before. So actually, I think they did a remarkably good job in many ways. And in many ways, I think the electorate has over-punished them. Um, very quickly, should we take UKIP more seriously and voters more seriously? Absolutely. Um, um, uh, you know, the truth of the matter is, as Margaret said, um, you know, the, the main political parties had not understood the effects of immigration and had not fashioned a way of talking about it which didn't um, raise all kinds of spectres of racism and things like that. And in part because of pressure from UKIP, that's now happened. Um, can we get a joined-up constitutional settlement? Um, goodness knows, but I hope it won't be a federal one. Um, Alice? Why don't I take uh, the federalism question? Um, federalism, I think, if they really concentrate on it, I think it is the issue they should be going for, and we should try and work out a solution, and it might even involve the House of Lords and changes in the House of Lords. And I think Vernon's going to be extremely busy in the next five years as David Cameron's former tutor, because he will probably trust him on this issue more than many people. <laughs> um, but I think it will be a massive issue. On um, UKIP, just to talk about it, because I am a member of the press and I know we don't always behave well with UKIP, but it is quite difficult when Nigel Farage resigns and then <laughs> unresigns, and we have to take that seriously. It's not easy, I have to say. So there are moments with UKIP when you think, oh, my God, and they're now fighting over their short money and... They, there is a protest vote that is very, very serious behind UKIP, but UKIP itself and the people in UKIP itself aren't always that serious, and that's the problem, I think, on UKIP. Margaret, were you very unfair on the Lib Dems? Well, actually, the interesting thing with the Lib Dems, I was thinking the Tories were much tougher on them and down in the southwest. The interesting thing about the Lib Dems is I think we thought the vote would come to us, and it didn't. If you look at where the, UKIP, the Lib Dem vote went, it went primarily to UKIP, which sort of confirms to me again this issue that it, it was a receptacle for people who were fed up with the Tories and fed up with the Labour Party in the past in, in, in many instances to, uh, uh, that they went there. Um, I mean, the truth is we do have a ridiculous system. I think all those the questions about UKIP, Lib Dems and electoral reform hang together. We do have a ridiculous system where it, I thought it was under 4 million voted UKIP at 3.8 million. I don't know if I've got my figures wrong. But it's, still, it, it's, it's a lot of people and they end up with one MP. Over a million people voted Green. They end up with one, one MP. Uh, and, um, but there is no appetite for electoral reform. We did have a referendum on it. Um, I supported that too because I do think I would like to see a, a, a more representative parliament representing a, a, a greater ability for people not to vote tactically in their constituencies. 
constituencies, but to vote according to uh, their commitment and beliefs. Uh, but there was no appetite for it. So I agree with Jesse, we're not going to go back there. But we do have that anomaly. And if there is a reform, I'd much rather have that reform than move away from, uh, from the United Kingdom and have any constitutional reform. That's the reform I'd really like. But, but Vernon, if, if, you, if you look at the Welsh system, dare I say it, um, uh, and you, you ask them a different question from just do you want PR or AV, if you actually said, look, it's clearly unfair what's happened to UKIP and what's happened to the Lib Dems, it's just not fair. The word fair, I think, does ring with people. Um, why don't you have a system which you have exactly as you have now, but then you have 50 extra seats allocated according to your proportional vote, so, that, so UKIP would get um, whatever it is, you know, five or six seats plus, and, and it, would, it, would, it would just look fairer, that's all. Oh, absolutely. I think, if anything, you underestimate the uh, situation. Um, I think in England, about a third of the voters have eight MPs. All but eight MPs in England are from um, um, the major, two major parties. In Scotland, the 50% who voted Unionist have three seats. The 50% who voted Scottish Nationalist have 56 seats. And David Cameron said he'd respect the opinion of Scots. Well, I hope he respects the opinion of the 50% of unionists who are not properly represented. And frankly, the continued existence of the first-past-the-post system is now a threat to the unity of the country because it's exaggerating the difference between England and Scotland. And there are, um, there, there are differences between England and Scotland. Of course there are differences, but they're not nearly as great as the electoral system shows. Uh, and that would be the unionists should have about 29 seats out of the 59 and the SNP 30 in any uh, fair system. And um, I, I rather hope the Labour Party would take up proportional representation of the, the opposition and propose a referendum when it nets next gets back to power because any electoral system should do two things. It should first have majority rule. Well, this isn't giving us majority rule. It's ruled by 37% of the voters. Nearly two-thirds, over three-fifths, have voted against the government. And it's an electoral system should also represent important minorities roughly fairly, not perhaps mathematically fairly, roughly fairly. This one represents minorities completely haphazardly and without any rhyme or reason. And I think the electoral system, it was designed for two parties and it is now bankrupt. And I think it's the great loser from this election. Hands up. Who wants to comment on that? Right, OK. Um... Um, there's quite an interesting point in relation to the SNP vote, which just seems to be sort of completely omitted, which is that Nicola Sturgeon campaigned expressly on the basis that no votes in the election for the SNP would be taken to be votes for independence. Yeah. And if I may say so, to her great credit, yeah. when she then got a landslide of support, yeah. she honoured that and expressly disavowed any reliance on that vote for that purpose. And I think that's something quite yeah. important to remember when we're talking yeah. about the constitutional settlement. Yeah. Okay, that wasn't a question, but um, <laughs> can someone take the microphone back, back to the person with the red sleeve? Uh, and next question after that. Uh, so the man with the newspaper was the next one. You say yes? Um, the Conservatives are saying that they're going to change and remove the Human Rights Act. Um, and then I think they've already put out an eight-page policy document saying that actually what they would do. Um, I, I just wanted to ask the panel, uh, specifically Jesse and my guests, Vernon and Margaret, Margaret, if you could rewrite the Human Rights Act, what would you do? Jesse, how do you going to change it? And Vernon, what would you like to see both of them do? Vernon, um, uh, Human Rights Act and, and, and the next parliament. Yes, I think it's unfair to suggest that David Cameron is sceptical or hostile towards human rights. He did make a speech um, a few years ago about how very important it, it was that human rights be observed. But he was actually talking about Libya. So the very important Libyan government observed human rights. But as regards Britain, he said he didn't want too much truck with bogus human rights and the Human Rights Act uh, is to be repealed. I mean, one point that I think hasn't been noticed about that is that that too threatens the union with Scotland because although human rights is a reserved matter, you couldn't, I think, alter the rights of the Scots without seeking the consent of their parliament. And it's unlikely that the SNP would agree to something called a British Bill of Rights. 
And then in Northern Ireland, the Human Rights Act is enshrined in the Belfast Agreement, and you would require, I think, the consent of both communities there to alter rights. And I doubt if Sinn Féin would agree to a British Bill of Rights either. So you would have an English Bill of Rights. You'd have different rights in England and Scotland and Northern Ireland. And that wouldn't help to hold the country together. It would help to break it up. So I think there are all sorts mm. of other absurdities in the Human Rights Act as well. If you curtailed rights, all it would mean is that cases would be heard at Strasbourg as they were before 1998 at great expense and time-wasting rather, rather than from British judges. They'd be heard by wicked foreign judges rather than by British judges. Uh, and the only way to alter that would be to leave the, European, the Council of Europe, which runs the Convention of Human Rights, and that would put us in the same company as Belarus. So uh, I think that the best thing is if David Cameron pretends that Britain is Libya and said we ought to respect human rights here as they should also yeah. in Libya. Thank you very much. Now, now you know why we invited Vernon Bogdanov. Um, uh, Jesse, you want to answer that point? Uh, yes, sure. So I'm um, uh, one of the... I think I'm, I'm one of one Conservative MPs to have written a pamphlet called The Conservative Case for the Human Rights Act. Um, so I'm um, rather in favour of the Human Rights Act. Um, the truth of the matter is there are different ways in which you can handle it. Vernon's absolutely right about the national issue, but you, know, you could um, tidy up some of the jurisprudence around the Human Rights Act. You could re-embed it in a framework of public assent and legitimacy in the year of Magna Carta that gave a better understanding of what the rights were that it contained. Um, and those would be thoroughly worthwhile things. Um, if you do anything more than that, then you suffer the following problem, which is someone asks you the question, which rights would you like to cut? The right to free speech, the right not to be tortured, the right not to be killed. Um, and if you um, are wondering about that, the further question is, would you like these rights to be justiciable um, under English law in English courts or um, uh, elsewhere? And if the answer to those questions is no and yes, then you have the Human Rights Act or something functionally equivalent to it. So I don't actually think we'll end up with an enormous amount of change, particularly um, if it goes beyond that. One final little point, which is when we are elected to Parliament, my great hero Burke says this in his great speech in 1774 to the electors, we're elected as the Parliament of, you know, a single Parliament for one nation. Okay, and there will be innumerable unfairnesses built into that arrangement, and they may be the unfairnesses of the boundary changes against the Tories, they may be the unfairnesses against um, the Unionists uh, in Scotland, there may be all kinds of unfairnesses of the kind that Margaret's point out. If we live in a politics of grievance, where all we do is focus on these unfairnesses, then we are fated to end up in division and disaster. We have to be thinking bigger, we have to be thinking about what Parliament is for and using it, and allowing these, these um, per personal concerns to kind of meld into a bigger, se bigger sense of what we're trying to achieve. And if we do that, then I think there's actually every possibility we can continue to govern ourselves well and to, uh, to do so in an evolving, intelligently evolving constitutional framework. Alice, your last word. After that, that's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> I would say um, that it's been a, an extraordinary result for everyone. Maybe not for you in the room. Anyone who's been canvassing maybe realised that the Tories were going to win. And I hope that the press give the Tories a fair wind, actually. I think we should let them have the first few months to see what they can do before we start pulling them apart. And I also think the Tory party should try and keep together for long enough and not disintegrate over Europe so that things can get done because I think the electorate did decide that they wanted a majority government. I think they did want to get a government in that could do things and achieve things so that I hope that's what they do and they don't just end up with internal infighting and bickering as they did after 1992. Vernon, last word. When uh, Disraeli lost the general election of 1880 as he was leaving Downing Street a very old bronchitic man um, a young supporter came up to him to commiserate and he uttered one word to this young man. He said, Ireland. And that, of course, proved right in terms of the British politics of the next few years. And I think if there's one word one could utter to the Conservatives now, Europe. it is Europe. Mm. Europe is the poison chalice of British politics. It broke up the Labour Party in the 1980s. It destroyed four Conservative Prime Ministers, Harold Macmillan, Edward Heath... Margaret Thatcher and John Major. Will David Cameron be able to triumph over Europe? That'll be the key question, I think, of this Parliament. Margaret, one sentence. 
I haven't thought about one. Um, what, what can I say as my final sentence? I mean, it has been the most... It has been an extraordinary election result. We, we talked just about the election result. It has been extraordinary, unexpected, really, because of the pollsters. But I think... Um, you know, I, th I think the Liberal Democrats will come back. It was a question asked earlier. I think they will. Uh, I think people are going to have to start rebuilding from their communities. Uh, the, Lib the Lib Democrats are actually rather good at that. So I, it'll take them time, but I think they'll re-emerge. And it actually, politics, that bit of politics is quite interesting. Isn't it interesting that the Greens got over a million votes? Totally unexpected that they did. Isn't it interesting, actually, that this new phenomenon of UKIP that wasn't around at the last general election has emerged? Will it remain? I think, actually, it's probably more transitory than uh, the Liberal Democrats have got a greater thing. And I have absolutely no doubt that Labour will be fighting back and will not only win London, but will win the next general election. <laughs> But ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Um, I, I think you'll agree the MPs aren't as hated as nearly as much as they sometimes think they are. Uh, Bernard Bogdanoff is not going to be unemployed for the next part, the rest of the Parliament, and the journalists are covered in shame. Thank you all for coming. <laughs> thank you for listening. You can download more Intelligence Square podcasts free on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you'd like to find out more about our events, sign up to our newsletter at intelligencesquared.com and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Mm -hmm.